0: Have you ever taken a trip that turned out differently than you expected? A few yes answers in there. That's good. For instance, as a child, we went from Chicago up to the Boundary Waters at the Minnesota and Canada border, border. And we went up there and we went on a fishing trip and we went camping and we caught a lot of fish and we barely had to use the food that we brought with us. Well, our expectation was... This is always going to happen. We went up again to the Boundary Waters another year, and guess what? We caught almost no fish, and we used up all the food that we brought along with us. Thankfully, we thought to brought it to bring it. Possibly, we just said, "Well, we don't need to bring food. We've got. We're going to catch all the fish we need." So, it turned out quite differently. We had all sorts of interesting experiences on those campouts, but that was one that turned out very differently. And we did make it back. I think that might have been the time when our, we had canoes, but we had a little engine, and that broke. And so then we, had, we were looking at the possibility of having to paddle all the way back, and it was a long way with portages and everything else. But um, some nice folks with a motorboat came by and saw us and, and dragged us back uh, to, the, to the campsite, or to the, to the launch point. But in my college years, later on, I went through a different kind of a journey that had a different kind of an ending, and I went to Olympia, Washington to go to college thinking I was gonna do one thing, and God had a very different idea, and I ended up doing something very different because that's where I found God. Now, I went to the Evergreen State College, which if you, I think I've heard that on James Dobson's list of the top 10 schools that you don't want to send your child to, Evergreen State College is on that top 10 list because it's a very humanistic, non-Christian school, and yet that is where God decided that he was going to find me. And so I went there with the idea that I was going to learn how to live self-sufficiently, greenhouse and fish farming, and then buy some land, maybe in eastern Washington, and go out and live and divorce myself from all the destructive cycles of mankind, And God had a different idea for me. So in this passage that that we just heard read today, we're going to see that there was a man named Naaman who had a very clear idea of what he wanted, and God had a different idea for him. Naaman thought he was going to find physical healing, and God said, I've got something more important for you here. I'm going to give you spiritual healing. So Naaman started out as a believer in false dead idols and he ended up at the end of his journey as a believer in the living and true God. So we're going to see that there are essentially six steps that he went through, that God led him through to get there. And so we'll see that because his goal was one thing, and God had a different idea for him. We're going to kind of track that, that journey of his. And we're going to see that in six different steps. And the big idea here is that, as Malachi mentioned earlier, that God knows what our true needs are, and he alone can meet those needs. Oh, There it is, by magic, it showed up. A God knows what our true needs are. Not just our felt needs, but our true needs. And he alone can meet those needs. So the first step that we're going to come across here is that Naaman had to hear about a prophet who can heal. So he had a need, and he had to hear about a prophet And the God of that prophet who can heal. Now, a little background. Naaman lived in the nation of Syria, or some of your translations like the NIV might say Aram, A-R-A-M. The Old Testament word is Aram or Aram. The New Testament word is Syria. So the name changed over time. The Greek word was Syria. And so when I say Syria, that's what the ESV has. But other translations would have Aram. The same country. And Naaman was a commander of the army there. And Israel and Syria were often at odds with one another. They often had wars. And we see instances of this even in 2 Kings. There's times when they they would fight with one another. And the king of Syria would be at war with the king of Israel. But at this point in time, there was kind of a truce. And we see that Naaman was a commander of the army. Uh, He was a great man with his master, verse 1, in high favor. Literally, his his face was lifted up. And because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Very interesting. The Lord had given victory to Syria. Very small point there, but God is in control of what happens in the nations. So COVID-19 did not take him by surprise. He's still in control of America even though it may seem like things are a little bit wacky at the moment. So, the Lord had given him victory. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He was a leper. We're not sure exactly whether this type of leprosy that he had was the same as what is known today as Hansen's disease, which is where your extremities fade away and your joints get um, diseased and... Literally, your, your skin sloughs off your body. We're not sure if it was that serious, but it was something obviously serious enough for him to want to get rid of it. And so it was some kind of, of skin disease that was serious. Now, it says in verse 2 that the Syrians had gone out in raids, probably during some time when Israel and Syria were not in such good relations with each other. And they had kidnapped a little girl. And this little girl was working for Naaman's wife. So she was a little slave girl. And it actually says in the text that she was a little girl. I don't know how old she was, 10, 12, something like that. And she was serving Naaman's wife. So she says to her mistress, verse 3, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Well, that's enough so Naaman hears about this prophet who's in Samaria back and Samaria was the name sometimes given to the whole land of Israel so Samaria was the capital city but Samaria could refer to the whole the whole country so would that my master Naaman that he could go to the prophet and the prophet would cure him of his, of his leprosy and Naaman hears about this, and he goes and tells the king, who's his boss, and the king says, well, I'll send you there. So we see a couple of things here. We see that um, Naaman's a great man with a serious problem, and a servant girl tells him of this prophet from Israel. And so the question then is, what causes us to pay attention if everything is going well, if, if my life is great, then I don't really have a need for looking outside myself for, for help. If I'm happy, if I'm content, if I've got everything that I need, why do I need to ask for help? So what is it that gets our attention? In Naaman's case, it was this physical ailment that he's suffering from. It's not clear that he could spread it to other people, but he might have been able to. And if it was like leprosy of today, then he wouldn't be able to touch anybody, including his wife. That would have been pretty tough. Or his children, that would have been very, very tough. So God used that physical need to get his attention. What is it that gets our attention is the question. There's maybe emotional needs as well. So for example, when I made it to Olympia, Washington, way back when, on that journey that I took, thinking I was going to do one thing, I rode out there in my, my uh, Chevy pickup truck with a cap on the back, and I was sleeping in the back of that. I was, had been used to going across the country back and forth. Grew up in Chicago, but had lived in the West for, for a couple of years. I was driving from Chicago out there. I pretty much thought I had it all together. And yet, during that time, that first several months when I was in Washington, I kind of felt like all the props were going away from my life, and I was a wreck. I was afraid for no reason. Emotionally, I, I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't figure out, what am I afraid of? And so, the, emotionally, I began to see that I, I have needs. I don't, I don't know what's going on here, but God got my attention that maybe you need something outside of yourself. Prior to that point, I was pretty self-sufficient. I could deal with stuff. I could talk to people. I could handle myself. I could get along with people from all walks of life. Businessmen, hell's angels, I could, I could get along with people. I kind of prided myself on that. And now all of a sudden, I'm facing a very tough emotional time. So God was getting my attention. Now during that time at the campus of evergreen state i actually saw a notice i think it was a notice i heard about a bible study and i met a few christians and those few christians had a big impact on my life this little girl she just said hey there's a prophet in samaria and he can he can heal my master you don't have to be a great person to have an impact on somebody else's life so don't count yourself out Just Hey, this, I, I, I know an, a Lord who's helped me through all sorts of stuff. I've got this God that, that can help. You don't even have to be all that well-educated to tell somebody that God has done something for you. So you may think that you have no impact, but a slave girl had an impact. Some humble Christians had an impact on my life. So step one was hearing about a prophet and a God who can heal. That there is a solution somewhere. Step two is facing obstacles. I've got overcoming obstacles. Okay, whatever. Facing obstacles. Some of the kinds of obstacles that we can face once we're sort of set on this idea of, well, maybe, maybe there's a God out there who can help me. Wrong ideas can get in our way. So wrong ideas about God, for instance. So Naaman, he thought that every nation had a God. So Syria had Rimmon, and the Philistines had Dagon, and the Ammonites had Molech, and every nation had his own God, and Israel had Yahweh. That was their God. But in his mind, all the gods were kind of equal and you just kind of went to whatever God was the one that was going to help you locally. And so his idea about God was way off. He also thought that you could take money and give it to the prophet or give it to the God and that God was going to somehow help you. Because it's a tit for tat. You give something, you get something back. The idea is that we manipulate God. And He's kind of like us, only maybe a little bit more powerful. So we treat him like he's a human. Another wrong idea about God. So Naaman had all these wrong ideas. And he also went to the wrong person. Take a look at what happened in um, 1st verse 5. The king of Syria says, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Well, didn't the little girl say, go to a prophet? I'm going to go, I'll send you to the king of Israel. Well, the king of Syria, I mean, that's the guy that he knows. And obviously, the king of Israel can help you because he's the king. Well, that's the wrong guy to go to, apparently. Naaman takes this letter and verse 5b, he went with him taking 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Again, he thought he could buy favor with the God of Israel. He brought the letter of the king of Israel, verse 6, and it read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you to Naaman, my servant, or sent, sent to you, Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And we don't know exactly how all this worked. I mean, first of all, Damascus is probably about 100 miles from Samaria, so He didn't just, like, get in his van and and drive down there in an hour. He had to take a pretty long trip. Maybe if you go 20, 30 miles a day, he went on his chariot. He had horses. You don't get horses going in a a couple of seconds. So they had to get this whole troop ready, head out to to get to Samaria. And when they arrived, it was probably a, a little bit of a big event. I mean, it was like all these people show up. Chariot, horses, a whole troop. Naaman's dressed up, looking pretty important. He's a commander of an army. He's got soldiers with him. And they, they get to the town and everybody's like, whoa, who's this? Reminds me when I was in Edinburgh, Scotland, and I was walking down the street and a limo went by with four motorcycles around it. I said, That's somebody important. Turned out it was Princess Margaret, I found out later. So, I, I think I may have seen the profile through a dark window of a member of the royal family once. I'll be signing autographs later. Um, no, but I knew that there was somebody important in that vehicle. People don't ride in limos with motorcycles around them if they're just anybody. So, when Naaman got there, there was probably a stir. And so he goes to the king, and we're not sure if... It says that the king tore his robes, but we're not sure if he did that in front of Naaman. He might have just stalled Naaman and said, Hey, uh, great, you know, go to the local Holiday Inn, and we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, probably gave him a place to stay. And then he's like, What am I going to do? He says, Just uh, look at what, what this guy is doing. Am I God, he said, in verse 7? To kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see now, see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Well, he obviously went to the wrong person. The king was more fearful than faithful. And we know that that none of those kings of Israel was what you'd call godly. Uh, This might have been King Jehoram who wasn't the worst of the kings and he had a few good points but he was not a man of faith by any means and he's thinking political intrigue rather than the fact that maybe God can help this guy so dangerous obstacles can get in our way wrong ideas about God the wrong people but at least the king was honest hey I can't help this guy Far more dangerous to us are the people that will say, well, i I got an answer for you. I can help you. Hey, be sincere. Keep the Ten Commandments. Here's a book you can read about how to meditate and find God within. If you go to a bookstore nowadays, and just go to a spirituality section, you'll be inundated with, with that kind of advice. As as a personal illustration, when I was there at Evergreen State College, a guy showed up. His name was Gabriel, and he gave a talk. Now, I had met Gabriel before. I had met him at a, uh, out in the middle of nowhere, it's like a gravel road to a gravel road, where they're having a, a festival, a healing festival, where people would come from all over the place and talk about diet and herbs and uh, foot pressure, and all sorts of interesting stuff like that, and probably astrology, and who knows what else, um, and Gabriel was out there. He was talking about diet and herbs, and, and he was a pretty charismatic guy. Um, I remember one night, there was going to be a lunar eclipse, and he was out there beating a drum to welcome the lunar eclipse. I mean, it was like far out stuff, um, and I don't need to get into my history here, but you get a little bit of an idea of the kind of life I was living. So he shows up on the campus, and I'm thinking, wow. I mean, I remember him. He's kind of a, a guy that knows things. He, he's, he's spiritual. And I remember going to that talk, and I only remember one thing that he said at that talk, and it was John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. Listen for the word in your heart. That was his advice. Listen for the word in your heart. Was that good advice? No, that was terrible advice. You can't find God in your heart. You find God in the word of God, and God wants to fill your heart, but you don't look in your heart to find God. So I remember talking with him and even coming away feeling like there might be an answer here. And then there were some people that lived nearby in Olympia there who we're involved with, with transcend, not transcendental, but meditation in general. I remember I went to a meditation session with them, and I came back feeling pretty good. But it was, it was the wrong advice. And thank God I didn't get caught into one of those kind of little traps. Because it wasn't satisfying. I, I still wasn't, I, I kind of came away feeling better, but the next day it, it, it wasn't better. So well-meaning people can put up obstacles and they can put wrong ideas into your head. So I came across the wrong idea and the wrong person. So step three, then, in, in Naaman's journey, is encountering God's solution. The king of Israel didn't figure out, didn't know what to do. He was he was like at his wit's end. He thinks that maybe this army commander has come here to pick a battle. I mean, why would an army commander come here unless he's like, you know, looking over things so that he can maybe come back with a full army? But now Elisha gets involved. So, verse 8: when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. This is really the turning point of the story. When God gets involved, things begin to change. And so we're not sure where Elisha was. He may have been in Gilgal, which would have been south of Samaria. And ultimately, he's going to send him to the Jordan River, which was probably 20, 30 miles away. So none of this happens quickly. We, we, when we go through a narrative like this, we read it relatively boom, 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 but you have to sort of fill in the story a little bit. So Naaman then is sent to Elisha. He might, have had, he might have had to travel another 20 miles to get there. He finally gets there, on his chariot, with all his people, with all the gold, with all the silver, with the changes of clothes. And Elisha doesn't even come out. Verse 10, And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. Okay. Kind of a strange command. Elisha didn't even come out to see him. He sent a messenger out. And it says, I love the King James here in verse 11, but Naaman was wroth. W-R-O-T-H. It's like, I don't know exactly what it means, but I know he's got to be mad. He was wroth. So Naaman was very angry. And he went away and he said, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of Yahweh his God. Translation says the Lord is God, but his name was Yahweh, his God. So Naaman at least knew who the name of the God of Israel was. And wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Behold, I thought. Boy, we get in trouble When we say, Behold, I thought, sometimes, don't we? Behold, I thought God was going to do this. Behold, I thought that God would act this way. And he didn't. What's going on here? So what's Elisha trying to teach Naaman here about God? Well, God is not impressed by power, money, status, position, accomplishments. He doesn't need what you have to give him. It says in Psalm 50, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. That's God speaking. God also knows all of our problems, even the ones we don't recognize. See, Naaman thought he had a problem. I got a skin disease. I got a skin disease. But Elisha knew that he had a different problem. He didn't know God, and he was still lost. So Naaman thinks that his problem is leprosy, and God knows that his problem is worse. So this command, go and wash in the Jordan, doesn't make sense to a practical man like Naaman. He's a a guy that gets stuff done. He's got soldiers that do things. He commands battles. He's a very, very down-to-earth, practical person. And Elisha just says, go down, wash in the river seven times, and you'll be clean. Well, he doesn't understand who God is. He still thinks that Yahweh is like all the other gods. He hasn't gotten to the point of knowing who God really is. So what is our real problem? Well, our real problem is the same problem that Naaman had, which is that we are separated from a holy God and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And then Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So people stumble at the, this, this message of the cross. It doesn't make sense. Jesus is humble and lowly. He's not flashy. He doesn't come with, with great fanfare, with a great entourage. Now, one day he will. But when he came to earth, he didn't come As a great person, as a king, he came as a, not poor necessarily, but a lower class, working class, son of a carpenter. And then he died on a criminal's cross. That makes no sense. But the cross forces us to confront our sin. My sin was nailed to that cross, but I don't want to know about my sin. I don't want to be told that I'm a sinner. I don't like that. My natural self doesn't like to be told that I'm a sinner. And so I have to be at the point where my need is so great that I'm willing to humble myself and say, hey, I need help. And that's where God is bringing Naaman. That's where God had to bring me. He had to bring me to the point where all my resources were gone. I had nothing left to fall back on. And I prayed that that God would save me. I think I prayed five or ten times that God would save me. And he did. So if you have never come to God as a helpless sinner needing a savior then you have never come to God at all. We have to come to God in our sin and our need and our helplessness and come to God needing a Savior in Jesus Christ. If we don't do that, we've never come to God at all. No matter what we say, no matter what kind of wonderful prayers we've prayed, we have to come to God in our sin and say, God, forgive me of my sins. I need a Savior who is Jesus Christ. but it's not easy to submit our wills to God. Naaman had a really hard time with this. But finally, he got some good advice. So step four is trusting and obeying God. So Naaman listens to good advice, and he obeys Elisha. Now, notice that the Advice that he got was from some some of his servants. So his servants came near and said to him, and the ESV says, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? And then he asked the question, has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? I think it it could also be translated this way. Um, My father... If he had given you something great to do, wouldn't you have done it? So how much more when he says, go wash and be clean? That was good advice. He says, if he had asked you to crawl on your hands and knees to the top of Mount Tabor, wouldn't you have done it to get clean of of your disease? So all he's telling you to do is go wash in the Jordan. So... Naaman, after the anger passes away, has, okay, yeah, okay, fine. He's got enough good sense to go and obey God. And it says then in verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child And he was clean. Now, in the Hebrew text, there's actually a a beginning and ending here. The very beginning, this little girl, this little na'ara, tells him about a prophet. And now, his flesh comes back like a little boy, a little na'ar. So, you know, in Spanish, you've got niña and niño. Little girl, niña. Niño, little boy. Um, This is... A little girl tells him about this, a na'ara, and then a na'ar, um, his flesh comes back like a little na'ar. So you've got a little girl, little boy, little child, little child. So you've got kind of a, a, of a, a beginning and an ending to this, this story. You kind of then are, your mind goes back to the fact that it all started with a little girl. His flesh is now back to a little child. It was a little child that started this whole, this whole journey. His flesh was restored, and he was clean. So he trusts and obeys God, and he sees now God's power. So the question then is: Are we willing to humble ourselves and let God into every area of our lives? Sometimes we we pray to God that He'll fix something, and I like to, I like to liken this to what I call back porch religion. We want God to come and fix our back porch. And we pray, God, would you fix my back porch? And he doesn't do it. Well, God, why, why won't you fix my back porch? What, aren't, aren't you powerful enough? Don't you love me? And God wants to get into the house. He wants to fix the kitchen and the basement, and the living room, and the bedroom, and the closets. But we don't let him in there. And so he just lets the back porch stay a wreck. And we think, oh, well, God, you know, he, he's not answering my prayers. Well, if we would open up the rest of our life to him, maybe he would answer our prayers. Now, I'm not saying that every unanswered prayer is a result of not letting God in, but there are times when... We struggle with something because there's something else in our life that we're not dealing with. Everything's connected to everything. That's that old ecological statement. Everything's connected to everything. In our spiritual lives, everything's connected to everything. And so I distinctly remember right around that same time when I became a Christian, I broke up with my girlfriend. She was a Jewish girl. And I said some very mean things to her, and I'm ashamed of what I mean. I'm ashamed of it, but I, I think I was trying to justify myself. And I said some mean things to her. And several years later, I was struggling in my. I was struggling with some things in my life, and I just I couldn't, I couldn't get victory. And I remember during that time, I ended up calling her up and saying, you know, I was I was really mean. Would you forgive me? And it's interesting that that area of my life that I was having trouble with kind of just, the pressure kind of went away and it was like it wasn't really a struggle anymore. That's just a simple example of how sometimes we need to deal with something that is, we know is a problem, and then other things kind of fall into place. So we need to let God into the house. That's the moral of that story. So there may be areas of unforgiveness or bitterness in my life or someone that I've wronged and I need to ask forgiveness from. And I can't get victory in this other area of my life. Like they're separated somehow, they're not separated. It's all connected. So maybe the answer is right in front of me. Husbands, maybe we need to be more patient with our wives. I'm saying that to myself. Philippians 3.15, Paul talks about how he had, he's pressing on to to the goal that God had set for him. And then he says, as many of you as are mature, let them be like-minded, and if in anything anybody is otherwise minded, God will reveal that to you. So God says, I'll reveal these things to you. If there's something that's hindering you, I'll reveal it to you. So we need to pray that God would reveal those things to me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my wicked ways. And lead me in the way everlasting. The prayer at the end of Psalm 139. Now the result of obedience is that you will witness God's power and God will vindicate you, and God will act. Might not happen right when you want it to. Naaman had to wait years. But at the right time, he was healed. So Naaman, in verses 15 and 16, this is the next step, um, he comes to know the living and true God. Now this really is the climax of the whole, Passage right here. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. That's where God's been leading him the entire time. Beginning of this journey... There's gods all over the place. Maybe I can go get some help from the God of Israel. Behold, now I know that there is no God in all of the earth except in Israel. Meaning all the other gods are nothing. They're dead. They're lifeless. There's one true God in Israel and he's the living God who is the God of everything. It was quite a shock to me when I realized that. When I gave my little halting faith to the Lord and said, well, you know, take care of me. And then all of a sudden, God appeared and I realized that Jesus was Lord of everything. And and, and my life began to change in dramatic ways. Naaman comes to realize that Realize that Yahweh is the only true God and there's no other gods anywhere. There's no other help. It's all meaningless and vanity and idols other than the living and true God. So he's made this transition from behold I thought to now behold I know. Behold I thought the prophet would come out and do all that. Behold I know that there's no God on all the earth except in Israel. That's what Elisha was trying to get him to realize by not coming out, by wounding his pride. So God knew that he had a very different need than he thought he did. Naaman, that is. Now, Elisha will not receive any gifts. Naaman says, hey... Take, take the silver, take the gold. And Elisha says, as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives, before whom I stand, I will take nothing. Why? Sometimes Elisha would take gifts from other people. Sometimes he would, uh, there was a woman that helped him out, let him stay up in an upper room and she would feed him sometimes. So sometimes he would take help from people. Why not now? Why would he not take help now? Because Naaman was a brand new believer. And Elisha didn't want to do anything to interfere with his idea of who God is. Elisha says, God doesn't need your stuff. I don't need your stuff. God gives to you because he's gracious. And Elisha didn't want to interfere in any way with Naaman's understanding of who the living God is. Is I'm not going to take anything from you. And so then finally, last step, we'll do it very quickly here. Naaman then learns how to worship God alone. So knowing who the one true God is leads to worshiping and serving the one true God. That's the logical step, that's how Christians move. What do you say that's how they roll. That's how. That's what people say nowadays, right? <laughs> Naaman came to worship God alone, and he asks these various. He asks for some dirt that he can take back with him, and he and he says, uh, "I have to go into the temple sometimes of Rimmon, uh, and I, when the king bows his head, I have to bow my head because I, nobody can be higher than the king. But may God forgive me, and." Elisha says, go in peace. You know who God is. Go in peace. So genuine faith always leads to worshiping and serving God alone. So when somebody says something like, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a Buddhist, or I'm a Christian and I haven't been to church in 24 years and I've been an alcoholic and I, I don't even care about the Bible, and I don't even know what, what the Bible says. Genuine faith leads to some kind of change in your life. Maybe not instantly, not maybe not overnight, but it does lead to some kind of change in your life. And it ultimately leads to worshiping the God of Israel alone. So, wrapping it up here, we've seen six steps in a spiritual journey from unbelief to faith. Now God's desire is that you come to know and serve the living God. Turn away from idols, turn to the living God. So you have to, we have to, you have to, I have to, turn away from sin and turn toward God. That's what God wants from us. He wants to heal us in every way. And sometimes he won't take care of some of our felt needs, to lead us to our real need. And God's the only one who can take care of that need. We have to put our trust in Jesus Christ as the one who bore our sins on the cross and then he gives us his Holy Spirit and pours the love of Christ into our hearts through the Holy Spirit so that then we can live lives in service to him far beyond what we can imagine. So I asked at the beginning, have you ever begun a trip that ended up differently than you thought? Well, I think every one of us who knows Jesus Christ is on a, is on a trip that's going to end up far greater than anything we can imagine. And God wants everybody in this room to be on that trip, to be on that journey. On May 18th, 1980, I was in Portland, Oregon, and that was the day that Mount St. Helens blew its top. Thankfully, the wind was going the other direction, so we didn't get buried, because Mount St. Helens is within viewing distance from Portland. But there was a man named Harry Truman, not President Harry Truman. There was a man named Harry Truman who lived on Mount St. Helens and for weeks and weeks, they were saying, this thing's going to blow. you got to get out of here. And he said, no, no, I've been here for decades. I'm not going to leave. And he didn't leave. And as far as we know, he's buried under hundreds of feet of rubble and ash. Up until May 18th, the road was open. He could have gotten out of there and saved himself. My point is that the road to God is open today, but it's not always going to be open. So please, if you haven't come to Christ, come to Christ today. Let's pray.